Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Gary Disher. Gary is the author of more than 50 titles. He was nominated for the Booker Prize in 1996 for his novel The Sunken Road, and he's got a lifetime Ned Kelly Award. Today, we're going to be talking about the third installment of his rural noir series. It's called Consolation. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people, and I want to acknowledge the traditional owners and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast, it's all about books, writing, and literary culture. I always want to share new Australian books to as many people as I can. If you are enjoying the podcast, why not suggest it to a friend, like, rate, comment, any way you want to keep in touch. It also helps other people discover us. Now, today on the show, Paul Hirschhausen is the only cop in a poorly heated police station in Tiverton. He was run out of Adelaide when he turned whistleblower on corruption. But the town has come to know him. He's setting down roots. But then there's always going to be an edge when peace are, when police are around. Now Hirsch has got a father and son on the run, armed and dangerous. The local music festival looks like it's going belly up, and someone is sneaking around stealing women's underwear in the night. Now, Gary and I had such a long conversation, I have split this into two. And today, in part one, you're going to hear a little bit more about Hirsch, Paul Hirschhausen, the cop that features in this rural noir series. So join me as we discover part one of Gary Disher's Consolation. Gary Disher is the author of more than 50 titles. He was nominated for the Booker Prize for his 1996 novel, The Sunken Road. And today he is joining me with the latest in his rural noir series, centering on the town of Tiverton and Constable Paul Hirschhausen. Gary, thank you so much for joining me again on the show. Thanks, Andrew. Now, it's been a year since we last spoke. Uh, a lot has changed in the world in <laughs> in that year. And for Paul Hirschhausen, he's still the only cop in the poorly heated police station of Tiverton. Now, the town knows him. They're coming to trust him. But there's always an edge when the police are around. Of course, Hirsch is the first person that they call when there's trouble and the first they blame when it's not cleaned up quickly enough. And now he's got a father and son on the run, an elderly resident possibly facing financial duress, and someone sneaking around stealing women's underwear in the night. I mean, we're going to get into, I guess, what all of these different crimes mean a little bit later, Gary. But I wanted to start with, like, this is your third book with Paul Hirschhausen. Over that time, so that's over a number of years, does that time, do those other books give you the space in Consolation to play with the character? Are you able to do new things in the company of your loyal readers? Yes, I think it's important for a character to, to develop over time. Uh, the only way I could keep writing the Peninsula novels, Inspector Chalice novels, for example, is if uh, the characters evolve. Uh, I didn't want to just simply be frozen in time because it's would be boring for me as a writer and boring for the reader, I think, too, if the characters don't develop. For example, in the Inspector Chalice novels, the lowly uniformed constable Pam Murphy, uh, by the third or fourth, fourth, fifth novels, rather, she's retrained as a detective and is a much more central character. It's partly because she grew more appealing to me as the series progressed. But for me to keep fresh as a writer, I need there to be a development. Um, with Hirsch, he's been there a year or a year and a half now. Um, he's has a he's in a relationship with a local widow. Um, he's made a couple of friends. He's on the tennis 
in the tennis club and uh, he's um, had to be the, the, the town Santa in, in the second novel piece for example so uh, he's starting to feel more at home but he still gets reminded every now and again that he's an outsider uh, he's an outsider of course because he's a policeman he's he exerts some sort of authority. People are going to be wary of him. So that's always going to make a character like him an outsider. But uh, he's a fish-out-of-water character too because he's never lived in the bush before, so he has to learn the place as he learns the circumstances of the various crimes he's involved in. I've um I've had the experience myself of making quite a big move since we last spoke, and Living in a, a new town, a much smaller town to to where I was, like I was quite central in Sydney previously, and I feel like when you when you are in a new space, you maybe close yourself a little bit as you learn you learn about the place and and gradually learn to become a little bit more of yourself again. Is there a sense that we're we're with a Hirsch who is more truly himself now that he's getting more comfortable in the town? I think there is a greater re- relaxation in him. He's uh... He's starting to read the place a bit better. He's starting to feel more comfortable with people. Um, a part of his, a big part of his job is being a kind of a, a welfare officer. Um, he's, he's looking after the, the welfare of you know an elderly widow who has a schizophrenic son on an outlying farm. That sort of thing. It's an important part of his job. With um, a lot of crime fiction, the investigator is usually a quite senior character, like a police inspector or detective inspector, and they're usually investigating one major crime, like a murder. But in the Hirsch novels, he's uh, he doesn't have the authority of a uh, of an inspector, and his job is looking after little crimes, like uh, a man going around in the dark stealing women's underwear from clotheslines. Um, that's all part and parcel of being a junior cop and being. A one office working in a one office police station in a in a farming area, but of course, a lot of these crimes are a symptom of something worse happening in the community, and uh, he gets gets shunted aside by senior police when they come in. Of course, but um, it's important that he's front and centre too in in what ultimately happens. I want to keep dangling those crimes in front of the listener for a little bit longer because. As beautiful as it is to watch you weave the narrative of the, the various mysteries into the book, so much of the enjoyment, I think, in, in travelling to Tiverton and to, to walking around with Hirsch on his beat is the way you establish that setting. And, of course, this year was an interesting year for that. This, this book was, was completed. It's been published during COVID. And the year has changed seemingly everything about our lives. I was especially struck reading with the ways that small touches, physical contact, dare I say it, acts of consolation feature in the story. And it's so far away from our socially distanced world at the moment. I also noticed early on in the novel that you firmly situate consolation in 2019. I wondered, was that deliberate? And did COVID force any changes on how the narrative and Hirsch's life played out? That Things that couldn't have happened if, if this novel had been set in a more contemporaneous setting at time. I wrote the book in about five or six months in a kind of heat during most of the lockdown period in Victoria. Um, and I, you know, I've always socially isolated, if you like, as a writer. Um, <laughs> But I, I had a 
permanent sense of low-level dread running through me because of the of the virus. And I'm an asthmatic, and the, you know all those factors that worked into it. I uh, I was very careful in my day-to-day contacts with people and so on. Um, but I kept wanting to weave the um, virus into the novel because what fascinates the virus itself is huge. You know, it's universal. It's too massive for me to contemplate. But what I, what interested me was uh, how people responded to it, the little acts of kindness and the little acts of meanness. Of, of, um, we all know the, the, the bad things and the good things that people did during the virus, and they are the things that interest me as a novelist. And I wanted, kept wanting to weave them into the book, but I realized I couldn't because there's, even now there's still no full stop to the virus. We hope that everyone will get vaccinated and that the virus will be wiped out, but maybe that won't happen or maybe a new virus will happen. So I just realised that I couldn't weave the virus into the novel because when it came out in November 2020, anything I wrote a few months earlier might be wildly outdated. So I just made a conscious decision not to weave it in at all. I'm contracted to write a new um a standalone next year and a fourth Hirsch the year after, I think probably I will be able to weave the, the pandemic in somehow or other, but it won't be as a, as a huge phenomenon. It'll be just how it affects people day to day, the wariness that has arisen in people and that sort of thing. You've beautifully anticipated what my, my follow-up question was. It, it, I'm fascinated with the idea of how this changed state of the world will start to play out across art. And I feel like a character like Hirsch or any any established character is, is perhaps an incredible opportunity for us to look and reflect on our world because, of course, we'll now have travelled with Hirsch through three arcs. He'll presumably, by his fourth book, he'll have been in Tiverton for around two years. And we will really be able to notice. And I, I liked what you picked up there on... Uh, the the magnitude of coronavirus can often seem too large to comprehend, but the small changes, the small acts of kindness, the small acts of meanness are very much part of our day-to-day. So, I mean, we can't talk too much about this. Of course, uh, that's the fourth the fourth novel, but um, I think that's something to anticipate in, in how you will realise that. Yeah, I still haven't worked, worked all that out. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. I, I, it, it can't be ignored any longer, mm. really. It's going to be in our consciousness for a very long time, so I just haven't worked out how I'm going to do it. <laughs> it's an interesting process, though. I, I imagine uh, on a sort of larger scale, if we think back over um, the last sort of three to, well, I can't think back over the last three to four decades, that's going to start to precede me, but over the last three to four decades, the way the public consciousness has, has come to terms with ideas around climate change and we are now at a point where um, it needs to be part of the background. We can no longer write, read, listen to music, consume art without that awareness of it. And that also bleeds through in Consolation. There are um, mentions of activism. There are questions around um, graffiti and vandalism on on wind farms. And um, these, these things need to be part of our background because they are the reality that we live in. Yes, I've become... Much more aware of 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 them as factors in 
daily life and of the importance of writing about them too. I don't want to preach. I don't want to beat the reader over the head with messages. But, um, you know, I grew up in a rural area. I saw, or looking back, I can see how a lot of my father's, my father was a wheat and wool farmer, but he was a conservationist in the sense that he was always planting trees um, to, as, a, as a means against soil erosion and so on. But a lot of his neighbours just over-farmed so that they were living in dust bowls, really. So it's in later life that I've become aware of uh, the unsustainability of just daily farming practice. And Hirsch, I think, will probably start to realise these things too. We've teased, we've t- we've given little hints. It's time to talk a little bit about the crime. And, of course, there is an array of bizarre and more mundane crimes Hirsch has to confront. But what I also noticed was that there seemed to be a theme um, – throughout of this always shifting divide between our private and our public lives in the book. Now, there's the rogue who's stealing women's underwear in the night from their lines, so a very private thing in an almost sort of liminal public space. We have the question of whether a child being distance educated is being looked after properly. We have a father and son who want the right to do whatever they want on their land, even if that's clearing trees, which taps into what you were just discussing, Gary. Were you interested in these ideas of that divide between public and private? It just came organically. I think I hadn't I hadn't thought about it in, in that sense. But I suppose when I look back at all the, all the the crime novels I've written, apart from Wyatt, of course, because there's no private life with Wyatt. That's part of his appeal. He's an, an enigma. But I have always been interested in the public and private lives of characters um, because they're not um, they're not divisible. Um, the unfortunate um, decisions one might make in their, in your love in your, his or her love life, for example, can perhaps spill out into the workplace and. Uh, I suppose I've always conscious, been conscious of um, that we are public and private people. I, I think looking back at a lot of the crime novels, um, there's not much of a sense of a private life of, of the characters. Well, not not in earlier eras. I think we can think people like um, the Scarpetta novel. Oh, sorry, the B.A. Warshawski novels of that uh, um, American female crime writers of the 1980s and 90s introduced us to characters who did have a um, did have private lives. They had messy love lives. They had aged parents they were worried about. They had a, um, a context of friends and family, and uh, that that is that is important, I think, because part of the appeal of modern crime fiction is that the Characters, the main characters. Ultimately, they're not us. They they step where we fear to tread, but we can relate to them if we know a bit about their private lives. And with with Hirsch, you know, he gets into enormous trouble because he's got a stalker, and he thinks, "Well, I'm a bloke, I'm a policeman, I can deal with this," but he doesn't. He can't deal with it. Um, I, was, I was so. I was actually. I've, I want to ask about that too. There's so much I think to this because you, you're, he does have to confront that unwanted attention, and it it comes through especially via text message. And Hirsch doesn't strike me as uh, a millennial who is 
you know, sort of hardwired into his phone. And it's very interesting to watch that progress of him learning to, I guess, react every time and almost he flinches at, at a certain point every time his phone buzzes because of this situation. It's also interesting for the reader, though, because we have an intimate insight into Hirsch's world. We we have that uh, unbridled access that I guess his um, his stalker is interested in. But he's a source of fascination in, a, uh, in his role as a public figure as well. Were you trying to re- reconcile those dual roles, the public and the private, through this investigation into how Hirsch reacts to this, um, this situation? Uh, well, like I said before, it's more organic than that. I wasn't consciously doing that. Yeah. I just... I was able to step inside Hirsch's skin. I'd had a feeling for him and how he and how he goes about his daily life. Um, the, the little private heart, heartaches, the little private pleasures, as well as the workplace heartaches and pleasures. It was all part of who he is. But I wasn't consciously thinking of a divide of public and private, but they're all part of who he is. It must be extraordinarily difficult for him because there's a, a an oft-repeated um, scene in the novels where Hirsch, whether he's going um, down, going on one of his his Monday or his Thursday uh, patrols, or in this book where he has the opportunity to sort of take a take a more senior role, and he's actually stationed out of Redruth, um, he pins the note with his number on the door which is essential to his role as the local copper in Tiverton. But, I mean, that, that sounds anathema to me, the idea that just anyone could walk along and, and have access. And, um, I mean, even, even in our, our digital online world, there's a, the phenomenon of doxing where public, sorry, private information is made public and people then get harassed. But that's actually the reality of Hirsch's world. So I, I, was, I was absolutely fascinated in, in what happened to him when that public trust that he puts out there starts to be abused. And as we mentioned earlier about this is our th- your third outing with Hirsch, I felt like we were really starting to see him him open up. He's a year and a half in the town. We're seeing more of, more of the real man and less of the person who feels he needs to protect certain parts of himself as he gets to know the place. <laughs> You've opened up... Um character and plot possibilities for me with that remark. <laughs> I'm just wondering whether in the fourth novel he will be more wary about um, giving the great unwashed access to him through his phone number pinned to the front door of the police station. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, I think it, about... It, it's, sorry. sorry, go on. I was just going to say, I think about... Um, People that I know, I think about my parents, and you know they they have things like their their landline forwarded to their mobile rather than you know necessarily having to use. And I in my life, I'm like I don't even have a landline anymore. But the various ways that technology can both get around that, but it, it also opens us up to so much access. Yeah, yeah. I'd be interested yeah, to see where it goes. There's a corner of me thinking now that maybe he's going to be a bit more shut down next time or wary. Yeah. Perhaps it'll just be. A, perhaps he'll have two phones: a work phone and a private one. Mm. But even yeah. so, having a work, giving people a work number is going to find him. But then, that's part of his job. He's a country cop. He's he has to look after people as well as fight crime. People get in, will get into trouble in rural areas. It, it doesn't mean a crime. It could be a, a Ute overturning on a back road. 
So he needs to be accessible. That's it for this great conversation with Gary Disher. Gary's new novel is Consolation and it's out now through text. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Click subscribe in your podcast app. It means there will be a new Great Conversation every week. I'm Andrew Popel. I'll be back, well, tomorrow with part two of this conversation with Gary Disher. Join me then. Until then, as always, happy reading. Bye now.